Books can be the perfect prescriptions to let us know that we're going to be okay. This is a word on a page. This is a page in a book. And this is a book on a shelf waiting. Those powerful words can be found in John Shue's picture book, This is a Story. John Shue has devoted his life to books. They've helped him through his toughest times, inspired him, and comforted him. In return, he's made it his mission to share their power with the world as a teacher, a school librarian, a widely read blogger, and eventually kind of a rock star traveling librarian. But there was one particular book still waiting to be shared. I knew that it was time to finally write my story, even though I knew then I'd probably fictionalize it. But just writing just that one paragraph was so freeing that I remember thinking, what if I wrote an entire book? In this episode, Mr. Shu, as in Mr. Shu Reads, tells us about the transformative reads that shaped his life and explains how some of those stories helped him and how some actually harmed him. We'll hear how he became an author and about the emotional toll it took to write his most vulnerable book yet. In order for John Chu to write louder than hunger, he had to turn his heart inside out. And that was true. He'll also share how he almost went into debt because of a gorilla. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and illustrators about ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Make sure to check us out on Instagram for giveaways at The Reading Culture Pod, and you can also subscribe to our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter. All right, on with the show. All right, let's start early. Uh, As a kid, can you tell us a bit about what your life was like? So I was a kid who loved to play school almost every single day. Um, My bedroom looked like a classroom. I had a huge brown teacher desk and the middle drawer was very, very heavy and you'd pull it out and it was filled with lots of chalk. And all of that chalk was stolen from various teachers during my elementary school (laughs) career because I I needed to like bring my teachers into my imaginary classroom. And so I spent a lot of my childhood alone playing school with imaginary students who I think allowed me to get out some of my anxieties and allowed me to say things uh, in a safe space that oftentimes I wish I were able to say at school because I was a kid who was often targeted by bullies. Uh, And I was a kid who cried very easily. Just kind of explain like my family dynamics. I was super, super close with my grandmother and I wasn't as close with my mom and my dad. And my mom and my dad weren't big readers, but my grandmother was. And really my love of reading and my love of libraries comes from my grandmother. So I often wonder like if I didn't have my grandmother, like if my grandmother weren't living through my childhood or I didn't, you know, go to her house every weekend, what type of reader would I be today? You said that you were bullied when you were a kid. And what was that like for you? Yeah, very isolating. And also like you try to protect your your heart, right? Like I was a kid that would pretend like it wasn't happening. Like if my mom did ask me, like, are you being bullied or something bad going on at school? I would have said no. Even like in my 30s, I think I would have said no. 
that I was not a child who was bullied. It really took writing Louder Than Hunger to own that and to say that a lot of my like trauma from childhood stems from that, but also knowing as a kid that I was embarrassed by being bullied. And for you, when you were younger, what were some of the books that shaped you and that you remember really well? Yeah, so I read a lot of Shel Silverstein, like memorized a lot of those poems, like Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout would not take the garbage She'd out. Was scour like the pots would, and yeah, yeah, yeah. scrub the pants. I don't have memorized yeah. anymore, but lots of poetry when I was young. But then as I got older, I fell out of love with poetry. But then I came back to poetry because of books like Love That Dog by Sharon Creech and Out of the Dust. And there's so many amazing novels and verse. But as a kid, I read uh, the book Matilda a lot. Uh, I actually write a story about Matilda in an anthology called The Creativity Project that's edited by Colby Sharp. And in it, I write a letter to Dr. Mary Margaret Reed, my fifth grade teacher. And in it, I confess to her that I stole her copy of Matilda. And I realized recently, the reason I stole it was because it brought her into my room. Like my grandma would have bought me a copy, but it brought my fifth grade teacher's patience and her understanding. And it brought her love and her joy and all of that. And I realized like that's what I needed at that time because fifth grade was my last year of, of staying in public education for quite a while. Mm, okay, so you left public school? I ended up going from public school to private school in the seventh grade. I went to a very small school that was only 50 students. It was a school where you worked at your own pace. It's a Christian curriculum out of Texas. And I only went to school from 9 a.m. until noon. And then in the afternoon, you were expected to volunteer or do something back to your community. And so for seventh and eighth grade, I would go to school 9 a.m. until noon, working in a cubicle, isolated. Again, this was a really good like formula for an inner saboteur, a very loud voice getting louder and louder because you were allowed to spend a lot of time alone during the day because there was no PE, there was no art, there was no music. And I did that for a year and a half. Wow. And in that time, my parents had gotten divorced and my mom was going through like a midlife crisis. And so it was really easy for me to get away with a lot of really awful behaviors that eventually, you know, created a full-fledged eating disorder. And so you were sort of spiraling this other way during that time, during those critical middle school years. Yeah. Yeah, because I ended up being hospitalized. It was during eighth grade that I was hospitalized. And it was all of seventh and eighth grade through beginning of school year to November that I was at that very small school. Who did eventually ring the alarm? And Yeah, it was actually the nursing home where I volunteered. Um, a lady who I would spend a lot of time with, and I cannot remember her name, but in Louder Than Hunger, I call her Miss Burns. I'd spend a lot of time in her room and I would read to her and she'd been a fourth grade teacher and she was very sweet and she was blind. And she would often hold my hand when I would read to her. And one day she just was like, something startled her about how I felt or about maybe she was reading into my heart and my soul. And she ended up um, meeting with the director of the nursing home. And then the director called my mom and said, your son like is not okay. We're worried about a lot of his behaviors. And it was because of the lady at the nursing home and the director that I ended up being hospitalized. How long were you hospitalized for? 
So I was in two different programs. I was in a program called Linden Oaks, which is what Whispering Pines in Louder Than Hunger is based on. And I was there for eight months. And then I was kicked out of that program because I was sabotaging the treatment of other patients, which is so painful to admit that I was sabotaging other people's treatment. But I wanted to be the sickest person in the program. And whenever somebody would come in that I thought was sicker than I was, I would become sicker in order to compete with that person, which is so, so unhealthy. And during that time, I appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show. And Oprah Winfrey interviewed me in the mid-90s about males with eating disorders. And I became kind of like famous at the hospital for being the kid who was on Oprah. And because of being on Oprah, the voice in my head actually got louder because I was like, I can never give up this identity. I'm becoming known for this. I realized like a few months later that it's like very, very, very unhealthy. And I think I only was able to fully realize it because I left that program and then I went to Rush, a hospital in downtown Chicago. And it was a very different program. It was a program where I wasn't really ever with people with eating disorders. I was with people who were struggling with a variety of things. And I was in that program for a year. So I missed two years of school because of my eating disorder. Did you find solace in books during that time? Like, were you reading a lot as well in there? Do you remember some of the... Yeah, I did later, like in the beginning of being hospitalized in, in both programs, and I, I think I show this in Louder Than Hunger, is he can't really focus very well. His thinking is scattered and he can't really dig into anything and he, he just wants to refuse everything. And it took a long time before I could read and comprehend again because I was, you know, I was starving my brain. I was starving my body. And you can't really articulate things, focus on things. It's very, very hard. And so, yes, as I got better, my reading life started to come back. And my mom would bring books all of the time. And, and at that time, I fell in love with Emily Dickinson. And I would memorize Emily Dickinson poetry. And it was because of someone else who was in the program who was obsessed with the poem, I'm Nobody, Who Are You?, are you nobody too? That really resonated with me because at the time I didn't know who I was and I felt like a nobody. And so in a very negative way, I would just repeat that over and over and over again, almost as you know, a toxic voice to remind myself that, that I was a nobody. And then when I first saw Emily Dickinson's photo, something about her eyes and something about kind of her looking lost resonated with me because I spent most of my adolescence feeling lost and alone. And really just, I mean, her poetry is often, you know, sad and depressing, which is how I felt. Eventually, John would recover enough to return to school and set his sights on being an educator. Although while he was out of hospitalization and the bulk of the battle was over, behaviors from his eating disorder followed him. I recently realized that trying to be the best elementary school major is how I replaced my anorexia nervosa. Because when I got to college, I was like so focused on school and I'm going to be perfect and I'm going to be the world's best third grade teacher. And I had like no social life because I did. I just, everything was about how do I become a teacher? It was a book recommended by a professor that helped John restore a healthier balance. 
one of my professors toward the end of my, when I was about to go to become a student teacher, uh, had me stay after class one day. And she read me a book called A Fine, Fine School by Sharon Creech, yeah. which is one of my favorite books. And it's about a principal named Mr. Keene who loves school so much that eventually they go to school every single day and everyone is miserable at the school except for Mr. Keene. And is what Dr. Koloff was saying to me was, John, you take school way too seriously. And is what Dr. Koloff said to me was, you are only going to last six months as a teacher because you're going to burn out. And that was like a turning point for me. And I put a lot of things into place right away for self-care. I always had a copy of a fine, fine school displayed somewhere in my class. It often encouraged me to take personal days or sick yeah. days because I was like, no, you need to take care of yourself today. Books were life-changing for John, from Shel Silverstein as a kid to Emily Dickinson as he struggled with anorexia. Stories and poems were always there to help him through the challenges in his life. Because of these deeply emotional experiences with story, John made it a priority to share that passion with his students. All through college, I was a bookseller at Barnes & Noble, and I spent every paycheck on books. And I had a really, for a first-year teacher, I had an incredible classroom library. And so I knew from the beginning that I wanted this to be a place of story, that I wanted it to be a place where I didn't just read aloud books to students, but we experienced books together, and that we went on journeys through story every single day. And when I was a third-grade teacher, I would not speak to the students on the first day as they were coming into the classroom. And they probably thought like I was like the world's meanest teacher, that I was like Viola Swap <laughs> from Miss Nelson is Missing. Because I wanted the very first thing that I said to them, not to be Kleenex goes over there and your pencil cases go over there and please line you know all your supplies up against the back wall. I didn't want that to be our first experience. I wanted always the first experience to be us experiencing a story together. And so once they were seated, directions were like written on the monitor as well as on the board. I would then read them Stand Tall, Molly Lou Mellon. Oh my God, I love that book. Yes, that would be the first thing. And so that's all to say, like, that's how I tried to very intentionally say, this is what is the most important to me. John spent 13 years teaching and then eventually moved down the hall into the library. But John's traveling extended far beyond the confines of a single school's hallways. Soon, he would venture out into libraries across the country. I left my school to become the ambassador of school libraries for Scholastic. And it was a role to advocate for libraries and librarians and to remind people that every child deserves to go to a school with a full-time school librarian, that going to a school with a full-time school librarian who actually has a budget uh, should never be seen as a privilege, but as a right. And that's really been like my mission for my entire adulthood. I, I left that position because of COVID. I went from traveling 220 days a year to being home for 18 months. And it it just wasn't sustainable for me. Thankfully, Scholastic helped create a lot of, you know, fun projects for me, but it just wasn't what I needed to be doing at that time. And it was then that I started taking writing much more seriously. 
Did you ever fancy yourself a writer? Never. Like it's so, especially because all my books are poetry. I'm really struggling (laughs) with calling myself a poet. I mean, this is a school is a poem. This is a story is a poem. This is definitely a poem. This is a poem. Lots of poems. But I think just finally owning that I am a poet, books are always going to come out of me that way. And it really was because of her and because of Amy Krauss Rosenthal, who once said in a conversation with her daughter, Paris Rosenthal, make the most of your time here, that I I wrote this as a story. This is a story was the first story that I sold, even though it was my third book that came out. Hello, I am Ivan. I am a gorilla. It's not as easy as it looks. That sentence is the opening to Catherine Applegate's The One and Only Ivan, the book that changed everything for John. I feel like my life can be seen in two ways, before I read The One and Only Ivan and after I read The One and Only Ivan, because my life has never been the same since. But people will ask me sometimes, like, how did you become Mr. Shoe? Which sounds like a trick question, but I think I became the Mr. Shoe that people know because of The One and Only Ivan. The One and Only Ivan was the winner of the 2013 Newbery Medal. It's the heartwarming and heartbreaking tale of a gorilla held captive in a mall. Ivan is tasked with taking care of a young elephant named Ruby at the request of her dying mother. Through this relationship, Ivan's perspective on his environment shifts. He discovers the mall is not a home, but a cage. Ivan then devises a plan to free himself, Ruby, and the other animals— This liberating epiphany had such a profound impact on John, he has since committed to sharing the experience of this book with as many people as possible. When I read those first, those 15 perfectly placed words, I knew I was about to have an experience that I had never had before. I've never had an experience like it since. When I read this book, I had a true catharsis. When I read this book, I said to myself, I've got to find a way to tell as many people as possible about this book. And so this is what I did. Every Tuesday for one year, I would go to Anderson's Bookshop in Naperville, Illinois, and I would buy every single copy of this book that they had, and I would give them away to strangers. And I really went into debt for a little bit because of the one and only Ivan. But yeah, for me, this is my heart print book, my touchstone book, my forever book, the book that I wish I could give to every single human. Wait, you put yourself into debt? I did not know that. Why don't you share a bit about what made it so powerful for you? Yeah. So I talk about the one and only Ivan almost every single day. And in my book, The Gift of Story, Exploring the Affective Side of the Reading Life, I write about my connection to the book. And if it's okay with you, I thought I would just read directly from The Gift of Story. Sure thing. And this is my first time ever reading aloud to somebody other than myself or my cats. So this is like my debut of reading aloud from The Gift of Story. So here we go. Ivan's story moved me on such a personal level that I began to share his book with everyone I could. I blogged about it. I wrote about it. I took a literary road trip traveling the country, sharing Ivan's story, and eventually got to meet the real Ivan in person. Still, what was it about this book, this story, this character? As a reader, teacher, and school librarian, I'd read thousands of books by that point. But what was it about that particular book that spoke to me? 
In hindsight, I realized that Ivan's story spoke to me in a private, quiet way. As I was reading it, I started to understand parts of myself. His experiences through struggles, loss, survival, friendship, and hope are universal stories that, when shared through the heart, connect us all. I experienced a catharsis of sorts through reading it, as I'm sure many of you have too. And while Ivan went on to win the 2013 Newbery Medal, I went on to elevate and celebrate more stories like it that helped share my heart and inspired others through similar experiences. So that's what I write about Ivan and the gift of story. And I think it took me a really, really long time to figure out why I loved Ivan so much that as a kid, I often felt trapped and I felt alone. And as an adult, my whole life is like trying to help kids feel not trapped through stories that they write themselves and through stories that they read themselves. But it took me at least 11 years of talking about the book to truly realize that as a kid, I felt a lot like Ivan does in the book. Can you think of an example of somebody who read the book that you gave it to that had uh, a reaction? Yeah. So in my book, The Gift of Story, I write about a child named Mario. I changed their name to Mario. And I met Mario when I was doing a school visit in Marin County, uh, near, near San Francisco. And after the visit, this child was very, very emotional. And they did something that kids often do during book signings, which is they go to the very last position in line. And sometimes they're doing that because they don't want to go to PE or they don't want to go back to their classroom or they don't want to go to lunch. Or sometimes they want to open up their heart to you. In this case, Mario kept going to the end because he wanted to open up his heart. And this is what he said. He said, thank you for talking about how the one and only Ivan made you cry. He said, when I read that book last year, I cried a lot. And he said, this book helped me deal with the death of my sister. And I just remember thinking, I don't know what to say in this moment other than this. I said, can I hold your hand? And I held his little hand and I said, I'm so grateful that this book was here for you. And, you know, I said something about, I'm really sorry for that loss. And we talked about memories and then he went away and, and I could see off to the side, his librarian was crying and his principal was crying and they told me I'm the crying. story <laughs> yeah, about how his kindergarten sister the previous year died unexpectedly. And I asked like, how did this book get to him? And the librarian, I think, said, I can't remember that specifically. So in the gift of story, I don't say the librarian did. And I'm hoping the librarian like reads the story in there one day and then emails me about the few things I don't remember. I'm pretty sure she said that she gave this book to him because she knew in that moment, although this book is filled with a lot of sorrow, that there's a lot of hope in it and that this is the book that his heart needed in the moment because it was able to help him start to heal. I too love that book. And I'm pretty sure that it's you who like made me know that this was a book that we needed to read, you know, because at the time my kids were much younger and we were reading aloud so many things, you know, you gave that book a, a new life. Yeah. Well, I love that. So many people will say that, like Judy Bloom said that to me. <laughs> okay. That's like a life goal. You can just check off. You can just, that's. Judy Bloom <laughs> told me, I saw this story in one of my presentations that she read this because of me. Because I was tweeting so much about it the year it yeah. came out. Yeah. And Catherine Applegate, <laughs> what's your relationship to her? <laughs> yeah, I just love her. She wrote the foreword to my book, The Gift of Story. But then in every paperback copy of The One and Only Ivan, I write a letter 
about my connection to the book. And then when I met Ivan the Gorilla, he signed my book. And there's a copy of Ivan's signature. I've heard that. Oh. Yeah. And it says to the one and only Mr. Shu in the book. <laughs> so to have like a letter that I wrote in the book of my heart, that was the turning point. It's like interesting because you tell that story of the librarian giving this life changing book, this story that gives comfort to this child. And you did that for so many kids. That's what you were creating. And then you were out speaking and advocating for librarians. And this is just such a hard and impossible time to be a librarian. And so I wonder how you think about and speak to that right now. I mean, how are... Well, yeah, it's very hard. And, you know, I I teach at Rutgers University in the School of Information. I only teach one class now. I teach the children's literature class. And I feel so grateful to be working with pre-service librarians. So I work in that capacity, but also at library conferences and just visiting hundreds of schools every single year. And there are two things that I, I always say. There's only two things that you remember about our time together. I hope that there are these. And this goes back to the importance of libraries and librarians, which is that stories affirm our experiences, right? We can help kids through reminding them of that and through the books that we give them. But then also in this time that we're in right now, where a very, very small group of people, very small group of people who feel big are trying to get rid of a lot of books and are trying to really, in my opinion, harm students by doing that, is that books can be the perfect prescriptions to let us know that we're going to be okay. And so I think like librarians centering those two things are, are super, super important always, but especially now that a book that you can put in the hands of a child can be that thing that can truly save them. And I am walking living proof of that. Like I actually developed a worse eating disorder in the 90s because of books that I won't even name that a lot of people now have worked really hard to get off of shelves, not as censorship, but just as this is like actually harmful. These books are teaching kids how to have an eating disorder. And so when I decided to write a book about my eating disorder, I had to be very, very intentional and careful. And anytime my editor would say something like, well, maybe you need to add this, I'd say, no, that is teaching a kid now how to have an eating disorder. I will not be responsible for that. My goal is that this is a book that I wish I had had when I was 13 because I don't think I would have allowed the voice to get as deep and as loud and as awful as it was because a lot of books and media helped it become worse. I'm thinking now about like updating of library collections, you know, to reflect updated understandings of issues like mental illness or self-harm, like you're describing. And I guess that's just a continuous process that all libraries, librarians are doing all the time. Maybe you could speak to how, how do you encourage or speak with librarians about approaching that task, especially now because it's increasingly under this public scrutiny? Well, yeah, because what I always say is like, and speaking as a teacher librarian, one, you have to know your community, but then everything comes back to your selection policy. So in your selection policy, if somebody challenged a book, by my selection policy, can I say that I use these resources and this is why I made the decision to include this book? And if I can't justify why I included it in our collection, then it doesn't belong. So an example would be my students, I was a K-5 school librarian, would always ask me why I did not have Hunger Games in the K-5 collection. Like They're like, Mr. Shu, come on. This was at the time that everybody was reading it. And I would always say to them, you can go to the public library and get it. Your parents can, you know, somebody in your family 
can purchase it for you, put it on your birthday list or whatever, but I can't have it in the collection. And then they'd again say, why? And I'd say, well, in the library, come over here and I'll show you my selection policy. (laughs) And they, they would be interested in that. And I would say to them, if one of your family members were to challenge me having put that book on the shelf, I would lose. And I would show them all the reasons I would lose that challenge. And so I think it's, you know, having your policy to always go back to is what I always used as a teacher librarian. Yeah. I mean, some kids can handle complex content earlier than others, right? Well, I always say that we have to trust the child. The child knows. The child knows. Like children would come to me and say, Mr. Shu, this word is in here. And it's not even like what we would consider it a bad word. And I would say, well, I can see that's making you uncomfortable. So your decision to make right now is, does it make you comfortable enough that you want to stop? And that's your right. Stop reading it. Amen. Or keep going. Yeah. Yeah. It'd always be because like I would say to them, it doesn't make me uncomfortable. It may not make your friend uncomfortable, but you you are able to regulate that yourself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. John Shu John Shu for president. John- <laughs> no, trust the child. <laughs> John's life as an educator, a librarian, and on a personal level, someone whose life has been drastically impacted by story, all culminated in writing Louder Than Hunger. We've referenced Louder Than Hunger a few times already, and you have likely gathered that it is nearly autobiographical. As an unflinching portrayal of a painful, self-destructive past, it was also difficult to write, and John almost didn't write it at all. But while navigating a creative block on a seemingly unrelated project, an expository book for fellow librarians, he had an unexpected breakthrough. In March 2021, I finished revising a book that I wrote for teachers and teacher librarians called The Gift of Story, Exploring the Affective Side of the Reading Life. And there's a chapter in that book called Story as Clarifier. And Story as Clarifier was so hard to write. So I walked away from it knowing that if I just wrote this one paragraph in that chapter, everything else would open up. So I finally wrote that one paragraph. And that one paragraph was opening up a little bit about my struggles in middle school with anorexia nervosa and about how through research I clarified way before I was diagnosed that I had an eating disorder. And once I wrote that one paragraph, that's like, you know, 60 words, I was able to write the rest of the book. And I think I was able to write the rest of the book quickly because I knew that it was time to finally write my story, even though I knew then I'd probably fictionalize it. But just writing just that one paragraph was so freeing that I remember thinking, what if I wrote an entire book about that experience? May I ask what you, what that original paragraph was or what, what? Yeah. So it's just about how I would go to the library and I would go to the library carol and I would make sure nobody was around and I would type in keywords like anorexia and eating disorder. And it would lead me to things about Karen Carpenter that were like so bad for me. And it, it would lead me to Tracy Gold and it would lead me to like, you know, all of these people magazines and like it was clarifying, but it also was teaching me how to have an eating disorder. Huh. So when you actually started writing about it, was it just really hard to be in that headspace again? Yeah. I think when I was showing like some of his OCD and other things, they just would come out. And so much of this book I wrote at like three and four in the morning 
I would just like wake up and I would just start writing these poems as like Kate Camillo always says that she starts writing like at 530 in the morning before her you know, inner saboteur is awake. And writing this was often like that. I had to be like very tired often. Interesting. And at one time I had to stop writing the book. I had to take a break from the book because I was going so deep. And I was starting to be afraid of food again. Oh, really? And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm writing these beautiful poems, but I am actually taking on some of his behaviors. And huh. my agent and I talked about that from the beginning, that we would have safeguards in place. And I wrote her and my editor, and I said, I am creating really good poetry, but I'm not okay right now. And I, I took a break from it. And then I evaluated what was going on. And then I was able to go back and write it. But because I had to go so far into my like middle school brain that was scary, I don't remember writing some of the poems. Really? I mean, like I, I know I wrote it, but I'll be like, I don't, like, where did that come from? It's striking because we talk about books' power and you talk about how they can comfort and they can heal. But you've also touched a couple of times on how that really cuts both ways. And I mean, here you literally put yourself in physical jeopardy to write this story, you know? And it just sounds like pulling back those layers into the mind of your younger self. I mean, you knew that was a risk and it just must've been really intense, huh? My editor said to Jasmine Warga, who's one of my favorite authors, and we actually live in the same neighborhood. Uh, she said to Jasmine Warga, in order for John Chu to write louder than hunger, he had to turn his heart inside out. And that was true. It must feel just really amazing to turn your heart inside out and then to feel all these people like looking after it, you know? But it also can be really hard because I'm a highly sensitive person that feels, I feel it. Sometimes when I talk about Louder Than Hunger, it's, it's happened three times now. There are some people in the room that actually remind me of childhood bullies. And this, this is the first time I'm ever admitting this out loud. And I have to change the presentation. I am feeling uncomfortable because of the energy that they're putting out and I don't feel safe. And I have to remind myself, I don't owe it to anybody. Like I don't owe like my story there in person beyond what I feel comfortable saying. And that's okay. I can go deeper if I want to, but I can also be surface. And in that presentation, I had to be, and all my pacing was off because there were stories I wasn't telling because I didn't feel safe to tell them. You know, and that I've never felt that with kids, with adults, never with kids. Really? In a room of adults when you're adults. talking, when you're... It's happened three times. I mean, and again, like I do like, you know, 500 presentations a year and only, only three times. But it was a good lesson for myself too. Like you, you are like downshifting inside right now. Yeah. And why? And I can figure it out. I mean, thanks to all the therapy I've had, I can often figure things yeah. out. <laughs> now now you really, you've really honed your superpowers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In case you haven't caught on yet, John absolutely adores books. I mean, he wrote a book about how much he loves them. So for his reading challenge, Story Within a Story, he wants us to read the real stories found inside his story about his love of stories. Yeah, I'll let him explain it. 
I'm the author of a book called This is a Story, and it's illustrated by Caldecott Honor Illustrator Lauren Castillo. And it is a poem about the importance of story and libraries and librarians. And it's really like the poem of everything I believe in about how stories can change us and how stories can connect us. And Lauren really wanted it to take place in a library. And then when it came time to start illustrating the book, Lauren was like, oh my goodness, I have to draw like hundreds and hundreds of books. I don't want to make up hundreds of titles. And so Lauren approached our editor and the art director and said, could I please include real books? So Lauren did win. And because of that, there are approximately 50 real books within the book. My reading challenge is to encourage people to read as many of the picture books and graphic novels and middle school novels, middle grade novels that are featured throughout our book. You can find John's challenge, Story Within a Story, at thereadingculturepod.com, along with reading challenges from all of our past guests, including Mark Oshiro, Matt de la Pena, Kate DiCamillo, and many more. My name is Amanda Maslanka, and I am an elementary school librarian. We service um, some early childhood classes, pre-K through fourth grade. This is my 12th year doing it, my 26th year in education, and I am exactly where I need to be. I'm in an urban school in South Houston and just love it. Today's Beanstack featured librarian is Amanda Maslanka, a 26-year veteran in education and an elementary school librarian in South Houston. She offered valuable advice for parents and caregivers to get kids excited about reading. I was immersed in reading at a very early age. And what I tell our parents here when they come for parenting events, we had Christmas and Cocoa at Christmas time where they come in and we have Christmas books out, holiday books out, and they come and have cookies and cocoa and read with their kids. And one of the things I always tell them is this is so important to your kid to see you read, have reading materials available. We as a school, we get kids books, usually winter themed books for them at Christmas. So every kid takes a book home. You know, I try to tell them, hey, the public library is right here. They have all different kinds of things available for you. Just have reading material in your home. Because kids, if you can read, you can do anything. And I have that hanging up in the library. So if parents can encourage that reading and make a point to read and make a point to show that reading is important, their kids are going to go so much further. Even if you're not a reader, fake it. Pretend like you're super excited about this book your kid brought home. Because if you show excitement for it, your kid's going to show excitement. This has been The Reading Culture, and you've been listening to our conversation with John Shu. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading The Woman in Me by Britney Spears and Lunar New Year Love Story by Jean Yang and Lee Wen Pham. If you enjoyed today's episode, please show some love and give us a five-star review. It just takes a second and really helps. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And remember to sign up for our newsletter at thereadingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter for special offers and insights. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.